So, um, hi everyone, my name is Matan uh, and I coordinate the Balfour Project uh, Peace Advocacy Fellowship. We have 12 uh, postgraduate students who are working on, uh, on different campaigning and, uh, and, 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 and projects. And one of the projects, this webinar actually is part of one of the this year's projects of uh, Pila, Douglas and Maya, uh, who when thinking what can we do from the UK to promote equal rights, one of the answers uh, that we came up with is to try put international pressure to prevent uh, expulsion of Palestinians living in, uh, in Area C. Uh, and this is why we are here today. Um, Breaking the Silence is such an uh, inspiring organization for people who like me went to the army and saw that the, 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 the army of defense is an army of occupation and documents this, but also does a lot of uh, work, human rights work in, 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 in South Hebron Hills. And this is why we're going to uh, hear about the situation in Masafer Yata today. Uh, so uh, thank you everyone for joining and I'll head over to uh, Becca. Thanks so much, Matan and Diana. Thanks for hosting us um, from the Balfour Project. Um, I think I can speak for Ali and myself when I say that we're happy to be here and shed some light um, onto the situation of uh, Masafiliata and the firing zone. Um, I'll say briefly that my name is Becca Strober and I'm the Director of Education at Breaking the Silence. And Breaking the Silence, we are an organization of former soldiers who served in the occupied territories, so the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza. And we then collect testimonies from fellow soldiers who served in these areas. We verify these testimonies and we use them the base, as the base of our educational work, which um, is, you know, today is a great example of some of the educational work that we do. And we give tours in Hebron and in the South Hebron Hills. And Misafel Yata is part of the area of the South Hebron Hills. Ali is a very good partner of ours who is going to be able to speak from personal experience of what it means to live inside a firing zone um, and how that's affected his own life and the life of his family and other villages. Um, and so I'm gonna just start us off with a little bit of information, um, kind of what are we talking about today? Um, you know, what, how did we get to the situation that we're in today? And then I'll hand it over to Ali to talk um, from his perspective um, about the situation. And maybe I'll just start by saying that, you know, we're really happy to be doing this right now because there was just another um, court case about the firing zone in or about 10 days ago on March 15th. So what we're talking about today is really, really relevant to right now. And there's a lot that we can do right now. This isn't a moment in history. It's not something theoretical. This is a real issue that's affecting the lives of 1,300 people, including Ali and his family and many others. Um, and so today we're talking about Mesafer Yata. Mesafer Yata means the periphery of Yata. And uh, Yata is a big city in the South Hebron Hills. In a moment, I'll show you guys a, uh, a map. And here is the city of Yata. Today, there's about 120,000 people who live in Yata. Um, and in this area that you can see is kind of uh, boxed out, if you will, there are 12 villages inside of this area in what's called Masafeliata. And that is the line that we see of the firing zone 
Um, it makes up about 30,000 dunams. So we're talking about a lot of land and the lives of 12 villages today. Um, and I'm sure Adi can expand on this from his own experience and his own family stories. Um, but I'll just say really briefly that um, Palestinians began living around uh, the area over 200 years ago, early 19th century, settling on the land that had been used for grazing by residents of Yatta, right? Because people would live in Yatta, but pushed kind of by the favorable climate in the area and cheaper land, families from the city of Yatta started moving out into the area and worked um, in farming and shepherding. And at first people were living there in the area seasonally, but as time progressed, their residents in Masafar Yatta became year round. And that's an important thing to note because when we talk a little bit later about the court case that's going on today, the concept of do these residents live there year round or not is relevant. And, and of course the answer is that they do and they have for a long time. Um, as families moved to the area, they renovated or dug new caves. There are natural caves in the land um, that offer a great option to live in because they stay cool during the hot summers. They stay fairly warm during the cold winters. Um, and many have lived in the same area, same caves or built on top of them for generations. And the residents continue to maintain a fairly traditional lifestyle to this day of farming um, and shepherding and um, making their money through ag agriculture. And so it kind of begs the question, there are 12 villages here, people live there. How does this become a firing zone? Um, you know, how, how does this process even start? Um, and here is just an example of a village today inside uh, Masa Feriata. Um, and as you can maybe see, um, we're looking at an area that's, um, it, it's more or less the climate is a desert. If you actually were to go out there right now, there's a lot of grass. In fact, there's a huge wildfire bloom that I saw yesterday in the area. But a lot of the time of the year, it doesn't get a lot of rain. Um, and so if we just take a really quick look at a map of Israel and the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, um, and we look specifically at the area of the West Bank over here. In 1967, Israel occupies the West Bank and there's one guy named Yigal Alon. He's a cabinet member, he's a military general. And uh, he seeks to annex the Eastern part of the West Bank to Israel. Um, and as you can see, the Eastern side, it's kind of this side that we're talking about, it includes the city of Jericho, but otherwise it's a pretty rural area. And though this plan is never voted upon, many facts on the ground have been laid out in order to actually carry out this plan in reality. And as part of that, in the early 1980s, um, vast swaths of Eastern lands of the West Bank are declared firing zones, which prevents residents from being able to stay in the area and develop the area um, and continue living there in a way that makes sense, is profitable and is sustainable for them. Um, and I know the slide that I'm showing you is in Hebrew and I'm assuming most of you don't read it, um, but I'm showing it anyway, just as an example that Ariel Sharon, who um, was a member of the government in 1981, actually said in a meeting that had later been uh, uncovered by the group Akavot, which you can see on the bottom left, that the point of placing um, these firing zones in the Eastern part of the West Bank is to prevent or restrict expansion of Arab villagers in the area. Um, he suggests doing this and it becomes a permanent plan in the early 1980s. And here you can actually see 
Um, I hope there's some people in this crowd who love maps because I have a bunch of them. Um, and here you can see this is the eastern side of the West Bank. And here are all of the firing zones that were declared in the early 1980s. I mentioned the Alone Plan seeks to kind of um, annex the eastern part of the West Bank into Israel. And this declaration of firing zones basically goes hand in hand with this concept all throughout the eastern side. And if you look at the bottom where it says Mesafariata, um, these are the communities that we're talking about today. Um, and so what happens since then, right? Um, the 918 firing zone, the firing zone that we're talking about today is officially put together and declared in 1983 when it conjoins two firing zones that have been separately created. Um, and nothing really happens in the 1980s, nothing really happens in the 1990s, though Palestinian communities in these area, the 12 villages already have a much harder time being able to develop because the Israeli army doesn't allow them to develop because what we're talking about is a firing zone, right? By the way, I, I, I didn't mention it because to me it sounds so obvious, but I realize it's not that when we're talking about a firing zone, we're talking about basically an area of land where the Israeli army practices, right? Um, with tanks, with guns, um, with you know major weapons. And in August and November of 1999, most of the inhabitants of the 12 villages are basically served by the army evacuation orders for illegally dwelling in a fire zone, even though they've lived there for centuries before. And on November 16th, 1999, about 23 years ago, 22 and a half years ago, the Israeli military forcibly removes over 700 residents. The IDF then, the Israeli army then went and destroyed homes, destroyed cisterns um, or watering holes where rain had been collected, confiscated property. And the villagers are at this point dispossessed of their lands and of their livelihoods and are left homeless. Um, and in 2000, the court allows the communities to return to their homes until a final decision is reached. That was in 2000. Today we're on March 24th, 2002. And it's now been 22 years since that initial temporary decision. And the residents and the villages are still living in legal limbo. There has yet to been a final decision. And, right. and this is a map of the area um, of the firing zone 918, yeah? Tuba, the village up here, is the village that Ali's from, so I'm, I'm sure he'll speak about it more specifically. And some of the other well-known villages are Fakara. Fakara was a village that was attacked in October by around 80 settlers um, on the Jewish holiday of Simchat Torah. Um, and we're happy to talk more about the settler violence that affects the area um, when in, in the question and answer section. Um, and just to give an idea basically what's been going on the past 22 years um, and what can we do about it? And then I'll hand it over to Ali. And so even though the residents of these 12 villages are allowed to return from that moment and until today, they're living under threat of constant expulsion since then, yeah? Although the eviction proceedings cannot advance until the Supreme Court case is resolved, meaning until they make a final decision, and that's what they talked about in the court hearing on March 15th, just 10 days ago. Even though nothing can be decided until, they de until the Supreme Court decides, 
we're talking about an area called area C. And area C in the West Bank, there's areas A, B, and C. I'm not gonna get into the details of it, but what's important to know is that area C, which makes up 60% of the West Bank and all of the firing zones, including 918 are in area C. Area C is under the direct responsibility and control of the Israeli military. That means that there are soldiers on the ground at any time who are dealing with issues sometimes related to security, sometimes not. But also that is the Israeli military and specifically a group called the civil administration who are responsible for giving building permits, permits for infrastructure, permits for building schools, permits for being connected to the grid, to electricity, to water. All of these things are under the direct responsibility of us, of the Israeli army. And so because these 12 villages are in a firing zone, even though there hasn't been a permanent decision, that means that it's the Israeli army's responsibility to give them access to all of these things until a permanent decision. But what we see in reality is that the army says, because they're in a firing zone, they're not able to have access to any of those basic needs. And so that means that it's impossible to build uh, structures in the area, such as toilets, such as repairing water systems, such as community centers, such as schools, yeah? Some of those things do exist inside the firing zone, but if they exist and they've been built any time after 1967, that means they have demolition orders on them because they weren't given approval by the Israeli military to be built. And there is no way that the Israeli military will give approval. Only 2% of requests in Area C are actually given to, vill um, to villages and to residents to build, right? And in addition to that, Something else that I think it is important to understand from our position, especially um, as, as former soldiers, is that although live fire is not used in firing zones or in this firing zone because the case is still pending, the area's status as a firing zone gives it additional challenges. Even military training without live ammunition takes place in the area and it causes damage to land, it causes damage to property. And as part of standard training for one brigade called the Nachal Brigade, soldiers drive in regularly in armored protected carriers and they go through residence wheat fields. Now these are areas, these are communities who live off of agriculture, right? What happens when we practice in those areas? And this is an example uh, of a training it's happening near people's homes. And um, you can see the kids um, kind of looking out um, as the soldiers are training. And I just wanna share one example of a testimony that a soldier shared with us in 2004 of training in this area. And he says, we were driving during APC week, which is a week in which they learn advanced training course for infantry, infantry soldiers on how to use armored personnel carry, uh, carriers. And he says, Suddenly we realized, I can't remember if I realized or someone else that we're driving on wheat fields. I asked my friend what's going on because it's still basic training and you can't talk to the commander. He also didn't know. He asked and then we were told offhandedly that Bedouins are taking over the military's firing zones. So there's an instruction from the battalion commander, I think. I didn't understand the term so well back then, but we train on their fields in any case. In addition to that, in, as part of the firing zones, and um, we also um, 
carry out raids and searches in villages. One really good example of that is uh, the village of Jinba, which I'll just, here you can see more training on the villages. This is just from about a year and a half ago, by the way. This is training on people's fields. And one really good example is a training in this village of Jinba. And it's a really good example because though you can't see it on the map, right below it, there is an infantry base. And when soldiers are finishing up advanced training, at times, and we have multiple testimonies on this, this is uh, the village that this group raids. Um, may it be for practicing or may it be for searching for military equipment. Either way, of course, that has a huge real and psychological effect on the people living there, including children. And one more thing that I just want to mention before we talk a little bit about the legal arguments is that all of these questions are partially happening because it's a firing zone, right? And, but according to Kerem Navot, which is a well-known um, Israeli human rights organization that documents land use in the West Bank, 18% of the West Bank is designated at firing zones. It's a pretty big amount, 18%. And yet within this 18% that's used as firing zones, only 20% of that, of that land is actually actively being used for military training, right? And in firing zone 918, Masafer Yata, the area that we're talking about, only about 1,000 dunam of the 30,000 dunam area of the firing zone is actively being used for military training. And this follows the need kind of for the Israeli military to take over this area and expel Palestinians from their homes being even harder to justify. And I think that brings us to the question of what is the justification of the military? Becca, we had some questions about that map that I, I think um, yeah, might- Yeah, I'm happy to take a question about the map before we continue. Yeah, and, just and about the colors of the map. For sure, yeah. for sure, yeah. Um, okay. Amelia Mills asks what the different colors mean, the greens and the yellows and the shaded areas, if you've fantastic, got Fantastic, fantastic, yeah. Let me pull it back up and then I'll explain it. Great question, thanks for asking. And we've had some comments from people that they also love maps. Oh, great, good. I'm glad, I'm glad we're map people. Okay, so there's a few things that are going on. One of the things actually I'll explain, I'll explain while I'm talking about, um, while I'm talking about what, what's the legal needs here. But just to give a really, really quick um, explanation. So, okay. So I'm assuming at this point, we understand the kind of the, the like brownish frame that we see. That is the area of the firing zone 918, also known locally as Mesafiriata. The green that you see means that it is a, um, I'm blanking on what it's called, Matan, maybe you can help me, Shmurat Teva, um, like a national park. That's been designated nature as a national park. Nature reservation is like what? a nature reserve. Nature reserve, nature reserve. Thank you both. And then the nature reserve, and so you can see that there are layers here of things that have been declared, right? The nature reserve has been declared on top of the firing zone. And then you see that there's white and there's blue. Now, this is according to the state. Yeah, it's not according to uh, the papers that Palestinian residents hold, but according to the state, the area that's white is private land and belonging to Palestinian residents. And the areas that are blue are a public land or as Israel calls them state land, 
And that's an important differentiation because public land is a term that every single country that I know of uses, right? It's a land that serves the public. Israel takes it a step farther and calls these stands state lands, which means even though Israel is not the sovereignty of this area, right? We're talking about a Palestinian public. By declaring them state lands, Israel, the Israeli state and courts then justify that they can use these lands for Israeli needs as well. Um, the other things that we're seeing on this map, outside mainly of the firing zone, what you can see in blue are um, Israeli settlements. They were set up in the 1980s, around the same time that the firing zone was declared, which is, take notes, right? Um, the Alon plan is starting to be carried out in the 1980s, and there's multiple tactics that are being used, declaring firing zones and setting up Israeli settlements in the area. And then the orange that we see um, is areas that are outposts, illegal outposts. Now, the differentiation between settlements and outposts are that by Israeli law, settlements are legal and were built before the Oslo Accords, so before 1995, while as illegal outposts are illegal also by Israeli law, meaning they don't have a master plan, it's illegal to connect them to water, it's illegal to connect them to uh, electricity. Both are illegal in international law, and we are signed on the Fourth Geneva Convention saying that we're not allowed under the laws of occupation to transfer the occupying um, a civilian population into occupied land. And then if we go back into the firing zone, um, oh, I, I will just say one more thing about outposts is that even though it's illegal to connect them to, it's illegal for them to be there, right? They have no master plan. It's illegal to connect them to, to infrastructure. And yet these outposts for the most part, especially Nofnesher, Mitzpeyeir, Avigal, Chavat Ma'on, absolutely are connected to water, to electricity, and have access to infrastructure, right? And then the small dots that we see are what we call individual farms. And maybe, Ali, uh, you can speak of that a bit more from your experience, such as Jabal uh, Dov um, and Chavat uh, Man. But they're basically individual farms that have been set up in the past few years, where there's only one or two Israeli settlers living there but they're living in places that are so strategic that they can actively attack all of the Palestinian uh, uh, residents of the area as they go out to graze uh, their cattle, or not cattle, uh, sheep and uh, uh, goats. Um, and settler violence is one of the tools that we see to, to kick people out of the area. Maybe Ali will talk about that a bit more, but I do wanna focus on the other one of the other methods that we're talking about, which is declaring something a firing zone. So I hope that helps to clarify. Um, the areas we see over here is just that means that it's area A is the darker uh, color and area B is the lighter color. And then everything else we see is area C, which again means it's under direct um, control, uh, direct Israeli control. Um, and I'll just uh, give a, a little bit of background on the arguments and then and, the, and what we can do and then I'll, I'll hand it over to Ali because I think his part is is much more interesting. Thank um, you so much. 
So again, as I mentioned, just 10 days ago, March 15th, there was another court hearing and that court hearing still has not led to a final decision. This whole process began in 2012. Um, and the state has maintained throughout this time that its position that um, they support expelling the village residents, including Ali and his family, um, because they are not permanent residents, according to the state. This is despite the fact that um, there are actually uh, pictures, like uh, aerial photos, during the time of the British mandate from um, the 1920s that actually show some of these villages, such as Jinba and Malkaz, on the British mandate maps. And this is despite the fact that there's other proof um, that the villages have been able to show to the high courts that show that they've been living there permanently since before 1967, since before the occupation of this area, and even longer. Yeah. So that's one reason why they say it's not a problem to practice in this area, because the residents aren't uh, permanent residents, yeah? Even though the residents and the proof show otherwise. That's one thing. The other thing is that in 2012, the courts made a change. And for this, actually, I'll, I'll put the map back on um, so that you can all visualize it. The courts made, a, a two, uh, a, sorry, the army made two comments to the state, to the courts in 2012. The first was that they said, we need the firing zone because the firing zone um, looks and feels similar to Southern Lebanon. And in the war in 2006 that Israel had between Israel and Southern Lebanon or Hezbollah in Southern Lebanon, um, soldiers performed poorly. And so they need to practice. And I, I have two, kind of points about that. The first is that um, when I was in the army and um, between 2008 and 2010, I actually lived on a kibbutz that was like 100 meters from the border of Southern Lebanon. And this area that uh, you saw a few pictures of is a desert area, looks nothing like Southern Lebanon. The other more important aspect of it is that occupation um, is legal as long as it's temporary, I'm not saying it's moral, but it's legal as long as it's temporary under international law. However, you can only seize land for immediate security needs, meaning it's illegal by international law to use land in occupied territory in order to prepare soldiers for a war with a different country, right? The other thing that the army said in 2012 is actually, we only need to practice on some of the land doing a wet practice. And a wet practice is what we call in the army, meaning you're, you're using live fire, using live bullets. A dry practice doesn't use live fire. And on the map, you can see there's this yellow um, lined area that I didn't discuss yet, right? Tuba's in there, Fakara's in there, Sorora's in there. There are four villages that are in this area. Then in 2012, they say, these residents uh, don't need to leave. Yeah, they're no longer at risk of expulsion according to uh, the army needs. However, they're still at risk of um, their homes being demolished because they're in a firing zone, they still can't develop. Ali's from Tuba, uh, you can talk about that more, more specifically. But what is interesting to note is the same exact areas that were declared um, in the dry zone 
are the same exact areas where Israeli illegal outposts actually have land inside the firing zone. So Chavat Ma'on, Avigal, and Mitzpeyeir all have land inside the firing zone, right? Is a coincidence that specifically this area was declared an area that is only going to have um, dry practice on it, right? I'll, I'll let you answer that for yourself. Um, and so these are the main arguments that the court, uh, sorry, that the army is making as to why we even need those areas, right? What I want to say about the um, the court case before I, I hand it over to Ali is, is a few things. The, the situation that it stands at right now is that the courts, um, when it comes to the occupation, doesn't like to make decisions that are essential and that could be decisions that are then the basis of a legal precedent for other decisions. And that's seemingly one of the reasons why this court case has gone on for 22 years. But we're not just talking about a court case, we're talking about people's lives, people living in legal limbo, being unable to develop, unable to build, unable to add infrastructure. Um, it's not a joke, it's not a theoretical thing. These are people, right? And, and so what the court is aimed to do is try and basically bridge between the army and the residents. And one of the most likely outcomes that the court is going to go with is what the army suggested most recently, which was, okay, they won't kick the residents out for forever, indefinitely, but rather every six months, the army will have the right to require the residents to leave for 15 weeks of every six months, right? But who is going then to deal with housing for the residents? And of course, what about agriculture, right? For, if anyone here works in agriculture, yeah, I don't work in agriculture, but I have a garden, <laughs> not the same, but even just from that, people maybe uh, uh, people understand that when we're talking about 15 weeks during an agricultural season, that is the agricultural season sometimes. How are people intended to make money, to uphold their lives, to send their children to school if for 15 weeks they can't access their homes nor their land, right? And so the residents have rejected this option, but it seems likely either way that the courts are going to go with either this option or an option similar. It's important to note that the, the, the high courts right now are not, the question, the legal question at hand is not, does this or does this not really need to be a firing zone at this point? The legal question at hand is, do the Palestinian residents of these 12 villages, 1,300 people, have the right to live on their land or not? And that's a fundamentally flawed question. But there's a lot that we can do. Um, we can, before a verdict is, into, uh, is, is issued, which we believe might happen in the next two months, it's crucial to raise the profile of this case. And that's what we're doing here today with you. And I encourage everyone to be active in this uh, issue. Any intervention, is going to be good at this point. We need more people to know about Masafeliata and the firing zone. But even after a verdict has been issued, if it goes, uh, if it says that the residents can be expelled temporarily, it's important to remember they're not going to be expelled the next day. And that 
it's relevant to keep putting pressure on this issue and keep highlighting this issue because that's an opportunity to put pressure on the government to not expel the residents at any point. And the last thing I wanna say, and then I'll hand it over to Ali, is this case is super important, not only because of the 1,300 people living here, though that in and of itself is incredibly important, but because it's the first case of firing zones to make it to the high courts. And whatever's decided here is likely to affect not only this firing zone, but every other firing zone in the West Bank, which is 18% of the whole entire area and affects thousands and thousands of people. And so I believe that as someone who once served the system, the only moral thing we can do is to resist it and to put pressure and stand with the 1,300 people who are potentially going to uh, be expelled from the lands that they've lived on for hundreds of years. I'll stop there and I'll hand it over to Ali. Thank you, Becca, so much for this wonderful explanation. So actually, hello, everyone. First of all, what Becca is talking about, about the situation of Masafar Yapa. So I will just like talk as, yeah, not like about the situation, but also what my family have experienced, like living under those policies in this area. So first of all, my name is Ali Awad. I am a master student and activist from the village of Tuba, one of the 12 villages that was declared by the Israeli army as a firing zone in the 80s. So actually, uh, I was born and raised in the village of Tuba. This land, Masafariyatta, as Becca was talking about, is our only homeland. Uh, my father was born in Tuba in 1942 and he inherited like our land from his great grandfather so since like almost like my family is living in Masafariyata since more than two centuries ago yani we were not like moving uh, because of the occupation from other place to Masafariyata but actually this is our only home even before the occupation and before the existence of the state of Israel in 1948 but suddenly, like my grandfather was living in, in Masafir Yatta in the caves and also like uh, raising livestock and uh, cultivating the land. Suddenly after 67 and a little bit after 67, he found himself actually is dealing with a policies by the Israeli occupation that aims to evacuate him from his land. First of all, it started like since the Israeli army arrived to, to the South Hebron Hills and to the area of Masafriyata have built like the, uh, the, the military bases on the hills. Like those hills are like the places uh, where our sheep and our graze. As I said, like we depend on the, on the livestock as the, only livest as the only livelihood for the whole, like for ourselves and for the whole families in Masafriyata. So taking away like the land, either for the benefit of the settlements or for the benefits of the military is something, another policy to push us like an indirect way out of our homes so that we lose our livelihood, so that we leave our villages. So it's an indirect policy. The direct policy is actually, actually dec the declaration of the firing zone. So I, in my own perspective and uh, what my family have passed it through, I don't. Be, I only believe that the firing zone declaration is only an excuse 
to say that we are living in a firing zone and to illegally evacuate us from our, our homes. So what like would happen if the 1,300 people were, will be evacuated from their homes? And if, if, the, if the court will give a decision in the favor of the army and to decide to displace this uh, 1,300 people, I will tell you like the experience that my family lived in 1999. That year I was not, I was just one year old, but my grandfather, since I was, since that, since I grew up until today, is only like telling me about like the, like the harsh experience that they have lived. It was during the winter time in Palestine. So he, they evacuated us out of Tuba and then my family moved and built like a few tents to stay there in hope of returning while working in the legal action to come back home. In, this, in those tents, like just one tent for, for the sheep and one tent for a family of a 20 member, like my grandfather family is extended family, my father and my uncle, that time they were married and we were three children for my father and my, my mother was pregnant with the, my fourth brother. And it's, it was also the time that also the sheep, the, as I said, like the livestock, the only livelihood for the people here is, was the time to give the birth. So in this temporary camp that my family lived away from Tuba, just like almost three kilo, four kilometers away from Tuba, also the civil administration and the Israeli army, as Bika said, the civil administration is the arm of the Israeli army that controlled the Palestinians in, the, in area C. So they showed up at our camp and confiscated like the whole tents. So in that rainy night, my family stayed like homeless without any life elements. They even confiscated the food of the sheep. At the like at, at luckily, like one relative from the city of Yatta rushed with a tent to build for the family, but the, for the sheep, they stayed outside in the open. And at the morning, my grandfather told me that he found 30 newborns lambs were dead frozen. And they continued in this way with like for several months without any home and without any like settled life until they come back with an interim injection in the year 2000. However, until today we are living like, yani, as I said, like in direct policies and living under the threat of expulsion and the, under the threat of evacuation, which it is, yani, first of all, it's considered as area C and any master plan for a village that for a Palestinian village in, in area C, it should be approved by the civil administration. And depending to OCHA and UN reports, 98% of the, of, the, of the master plans that, rec that received to the, to the civil administration are rejected, 98%. And I believe more, like in the whole area of the South Hebron Hills, there are just two villages that have a master plan in particular area of the village. For my village, like it doesn't, it was declared as a firing zone and it is in area C. So anything, even like, like schools and uh, medical link clinics, it's considered by the civil administration as legal and, and as a subject of the, of the demolition. So here in Masafar Yatta, the civil administration is very active weekly distributing the whole like uh, demolition orders in the in the homes and the infrastructure that the people try to build like as sh main shelters for their for their families because the families are expanded uh, expanded every every 
like every year and they need like new generation are getting married and they have Masafariyatta as their only home and uh, they need to build the new houses and those new houses either in you know, every week there is a distribution of home demolition against the residents of 1,300 residents in Masafariyatta or there will be an actually home demolition or not just a home demolition of the human beings but also against the sheep and the water cisterns. And it's like not having a master plan doesn't just mean that the home would be demolition, but also any attempt of building the main services that the residents will need it a subject of uh, demolition and to prohibit it. So the people here are not allowed, like for, my, for example, my village, it's not allowed to be connected to the water or to the, to the electricity. Like if you if, if I show you like the road that leads to my the only road that leads to my village, like normal cars can't even drive drive there. And the other policy, which it is uh, the the I mean the settlements, those military bases that arrived in '67 after occupying West Bank in the South Hebron Hills and the Masafriyatta in the '80s in a legal in like a clear violation to international law. Israel is, bring, is using its civilians as settlers in the occupied territories. So they transferred those military bases into residential neighborhoods in order to bring Israeli civilians as settlers in the, in the occupied West Bank. So those settlements like few hundred meters away from my village, it, as, as uh, Becca showed, like my village, it's from the south part it's Israel where we as Palestinians are not allowed to go. And from the other side, there is a chain of settlement that separate my village from the rest of the West Bank. Uh, in that year also, in order to keep expanding the, the, the settlements, they uh, enforced what in the blue showed in the, in the map of uh, that Baker showed, the blue areas, they showed like what's so-called the state land law which actually it's an, a law that was implemented here in Palestine during the Ottoman era time. It's to, that's it. If the person doesn't use his land for a few years, then this year will transfer to the public uh, benefits. Here Israel actually is using this law for, for colonial, colonial goals, for the colonialism, because what it's do, it's do, it implemented it in the occupied territories in order to expand its settlements, the out the agricultural outpost here. So after like here in Palestine, people like in the Masafariyatta use part of the land for, uh, for plantation and the other part, which is a stony, they use it for grazing. Even the law in the Ottoman Empire said, grazing is using it. You are using your land, even if you just graze in it and you don't plant it. This is stony land, mostly the hills here in Masafariyatta, the top of the hills, it's declared as a state land. Then the state have the right to lease this land for whoever the, the state wants, which means the state of Israel here in the, the military occupation in the occupied territories. Here, what they do actually is they lease it to the settlers in order to build agricultural outposts, which actually seven of them in Masafariyatta in the whole area of uh, of uh, South Hebron Hills just started since 2020 until today. Around my village, Tuba, beside Chavat Ma'on that was established in the 90s, there is uh, Chavat Man also that was established in July 2020. And also another one which is uh, in, on a hill that's called Dove, 
both of them are making a chain, a total chain around my village. They like, I can tell last year until this year, we lost tens of thousands of donums of land we are not allowed to graze in anymore. It's because of the control and the settler violence that comes from the settlers who establish those outposts. So, I mean, uh, I just like don't want to take more time. I just want to say like briefly about focusing about the firing zone is now they are uh, evacuating those eight villages, which is like the giving order of evacuating eight villages out of the 12 that were declared. My village <clears throat> since 2012, they said that we can stay. Actually, it is not because they said like they, they don't want to evacuate us as the rest of the residents in the other eight villages, but because it's located next to Israeli illegal outpost inside the firing zone, like Chavat Ma'on, like Abigail in the same line of Abigail in the same line of Matzbeya Ir. So they want to get those outposts because they are caring about every colonial settlers in the area. They don't want to remove any. Those are considered as illegal, even in the Israel law, but they are connected with paved road and electricity and uh, water. Uh, so they want, they took like that, that this area out that we can stay because of the Israeli illegal outposts. But still they are saying, for example, in my village, that is that they said that we can stay any home that was built after 2012 it must be demolished so for example in my village there are around 12 structures that we built even some of them before 2012 but the civil administration claimed that it was after so it's under the threat of demolition and it was connected to the main case of the other eight villages so my village next to the out illegal outpost in the firing zone will be connected to the main file of evacuating Palestinian villages, but the Israeli illegal outpost will not be hurt in any way. So, <coughs> yani, I'm thankful everyone that showed up to listen to the story here. And uh, we really ask you to, like, to visit, uh, for example, there's like a website that we are making is Save Masafar Yatta campaign. And uh, you can have a look through it. And we are asking you to stand up for this ethnic cleanizing that will make 1,300 people, including myself and my cousins and little children will be without homes, without livelihoods. We are asking you to stand up for this apartheid and this ethnic cleanizing. And thank you so much. I don't want to take more time just to leave for the questions. Thank you so much, both of you. That was fascinating and heartbreaking. Um, Becca, you've very kindly posted in the chat box some useful links, including an article that, um, that Ali wrote with some other people. Um, so do check that out, everyone. Um, we've had some questions. If still time to ask questions, everyone. So if you want to pop any questions in the chat box. Um, we do have a couple of people talking about what Ali literally said in his last comment um, about whether these um, these tactics are could be described as ethnic cleansing. Um, I don't know if you want to comment on that. Ali already did. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I'll say like, in the end of the day, what we describe is the reality. And the reality is the pressure that uh, the state is putting on these areas, basically to get them to leave area C, yeah, and move into area A, which is under, which is basically big Palestinian cities, right? Leave Masafel Yatta and move to Yatta. Um, there are a lot of terms that you can use for it. But I think regardless, it's something that we have to band together and stop. Um, that's totally immoral, um, regardless of whichever legal term you use to call it, right? There's no, there's nothing that can morally uh, justify um, kicking 1,300 people out of their home, regardless of if the courts say we're talking about a temporary situation. There's nothing temporary about that, right? There's nothing, temp these are people's lives. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And as you say, it's it's this case is setting a precedent for what might come for a bunch of other communities in the same absolutely uh, situation. So it it could be have further reaching consequences. Um, got a question from Amelia Mills, which I'm curious about. Um, the green area, the national parks that you were showing on the maps, have they been created by the Jewish National Fund? Don't know whether I, should, you would know. I should know the answer to that, um, but I think that this area, I don't want to misspeak, there's two options. One is the Jewish National Fund, and there are Jewish National Fund um, <clears throat> areas that have been built in the West Bank, and if you take a look, for example, I'm going to put the, I'm going to share my screen for a second. If you take a look, for example, Chavat Ma'on, which is an unauthorized outpost, and someone asked, what are the names of these unauthorized outposts? Yeah. So you can see Chavat Ma'on, Avigal, anything that you see in um, orange. Chavat Ma'on is built on a JNF forest. This forest, though, I actually am not 100% sure, and I think it might be, um, the other option is uh, um, like an Israel national forest, um, meaning there are multiple, and I believe it's that. I believe it's not a JNF forest, but um, if you will all allow me to finish this and um, get a more proper answer, and I can, e you know, if we send up a follow-up email, I'm happy to look it up and send it either way. Yeah, I suspect her reason for asking, and maybe I'm wrong here, is because the Jewish National Fund obviously um, is considered by many as a legitimate organization that gets funding here in the UK, and if it is involved in something that is considered illegal by international standards, then that would be absolutely unusual this and, specific yeah. example. Absolutely, the JNF is working in um, the West Bank. And I actually, when Ali answers a question, I'll quickly look up and find and send to you all. There was recently published um, um, a research about how involved the JNF is in the West Bank. Um, and so I'm happy to send that over to you all. Fantastic. Thank you so yeah, much. We get more information about it. Great. We've got loads of questions coming in. Um, so we've got from Sandra Hamruni, who is one of the Balfour Project Executive Committee members and who worked with the British Council over there. Um, she says, when I worked there, I saw illegal settlements with swimming pools and electric lights for roses that were going to be sold in Europe, whereas Palestinians had no access to water or electricity. Can you say something about the comparative use of resources by Palestinians and by the settlers? So the, the difference in the allocation of these resources. Maybe to Ali. 
Yeah. Sorry, what, like, uh, what the question Did you is? say something about how the water is um, distributed between the settlers and the residents? Um, because the lady asking the question says, you know, in the settlements, you see these swimming pools and electricity and water being used, um, you know, like there's no issue. And then you compare it to the, yeah. Okay, so for the distribution, we start first of all, like in Area C, for example, uh, Palestinians are not allowed totally, like at all, to connect to water or to have a water. Like, except for like those villages who get like a master plan, they will get a water actually from uh, from like the Israeli company, it's called Mikrot. So I think like uh, Bika can uh, like correct my, uh, I mean, I'm telling like something on the ground, but Bika can explain more about it is uh, Mikorot is controlling actually like the water in the in the West Bank. So like, for example, like uh, the what like been, according to Oslo Accords between the Palestinian Liberation Organization and Israel, Palestinians are not allowed to use like the groundwater. So we just like need like the Israel control the whole water resources, the groundwater in the West Bank in the occupied territories and uh, yeah, so I mean, even like the Palestinians uh, in Area A, like which it is today under the Palestinian Authority, they get the water from the from the Israeli company, which is called Mikrot. And uh, I would say, like, uh, يعني, maybe like a tree in a settlement have more water than a, a whole Palestinian neighborhoods. And of so, course, it's expensive to have the yeah, water coming like, in on trucks and... It was like, you know, like uh, my friend, uh, she's making a research around the water and I, I'm following, like, I go with her and uh, heard, like, yani, for example, like, they give them a specific water. And for the Palestinians, just like a specific time during the week, they distribute it between the towns. But for the settlements, it's totally connected. So for the Palestinians in in the in the in the West Bank, they have like a specific time of the week where they will have water from Mikrot, and they don't even like allow them to make like stores for the. They don't allow them to build the stores to store the water, so they will get water for one week for a day in the week and to store it for the rest of the week. So so for the Palestinians, they have to make kind of. Yeah, to depend the rest of the week on small like uh, uh, store inside their homes, even if some of the houses and some of the villages, the water net doesn't really reach to the houses, so uh, they need to tank their water. For us in Masafariyatta, we are not allowed to have any kind of water connection, like any attempt of, uh, but the Israeli illegal outpost inside the firing zone are totally connected and the settlements have yani, the settlements that are approved by the Israeli government have a 24-7 connection to water. In our, in our villages in Masafariyatta, any attempt of connecting, for example, there is a village that's called Litwani. It has a master plan, it has a water. So sometimes it has like, it gets water from Mikrot, 
Sometimes people, the nearby villages, like this village, it's just like at the border of the firing zone. So the villages like Mufagra and other villages, if the people there try to connect with pipes under the ground from this village to, to, to the firing zone villages, it will get destroyed by the bulldozers. So the only, the only thing that the people can do is to dig uh, water cisterns to gather the water, uh, like to, to gather the, the rain water. Like you are talking about thousands of people and tens of thousands of animals that need to depend in this small store of water. So they finish it in less than a quarter of the year as it's as I am, as like what we are facing in my village, for example. The rest of the year, we have to tank the water. So to have tanked the water, for example, is the, the water like uh, 20, 20 meter uh, cube of water reached to my village, it costs more than $100 with the driver. But for the, for the settlers, like it doesn't it, like, it doesn't cost, يعني, I think they, in Israel Hills, they sell it each, <coughs> يعني, uh, let me just figure it out. Uh, yeah, it's just like uh, this 20 will cost for the settler uh, maybe less than a 20 shekel, I guess. So this is like how is the distribution. For the settlers, like a water connection, just he opened the tap in his settlements. For me, I need to get a tank water from the city to uh, to like to the well, and uh, I have to be like something ten times more than the settlers do. We heard or two weeks ago we had Abbas Milham from the he's the executive director of the Palestine Palestinian Farmers Union speaking to us. And um, he talked a lot about the water issue. He was talking about agriculture in Area C in Gaza. So if anyone is really interested in this, then please do have a look at our past events page because we have recordings of all of our webinars. This event will be recorded, is re being recorded and will be posted on there as well. So please do um, share it with anyone that you think will be interested. Thank you so much for that, Ali. Um, we've got one quick thing about the water because I just I just see a lot of people asked clarifying questions. Um, Ali spoke really well um, about the situation, but I just want to clarify that, you know, the West Bank is gone on. Under development since occupation in 1960 through military orders, um, the Israeli army in the that's functioning in the West Bank takes control over all of the water of the West Bank, meaning from pretty much the beginning of the occupation, if Palestinians want to drill new wells, fix wells, um, uh, to groundwater, anything similar, that basically has to go through the approval of the Israeli army. And this process ends up being quite solidified during the Oslo period um, in the 1990s. And, you know, if I like, I'm, I'm gonna put a map back up again, just because I, I think it's like, it just really, it, it really highlights the situation. Um, so if you look up here where today the, the brown is area A, the green is area B and area C is the, is the sorry, yellow is area B and, and C is, is the green. 
the areas that you see Janine, Nablus is an exception, but Janine, Ramallah, Bethlehem, Hebron, those are all areas that you can't see on this map, but they're built on the top of a hill, right? You, you have these like major hills, kind of like mini mountains. Um, that's why the area we're talking about is called the South Hebron Hills. And the green to the east is, is lower, is, is down below. And I say that, um, I, I point that out as being relevant because the majority of the natural resources, land and otherwise, that's accessible in the West Bank today is in Area C, which means it's under full Israeli control. And so Palestinians, even if they live in Area A and want to get water, um, have to go through that, have to go through a process of basically getting, a, 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 putting in a request and getting um, an okay or a permit from the Israeli army. That's, that's a level of control in the West Bank. And the other thing that I wanted to say that Ali talked about um, and, and just want to kind of like drive the point home is that not just in the not just talking about the um, um, the differences inside the West Bank, but in Israel, right? I, I, I live inside uh, Israel. I live in, in a moshav next to Lod. Um, and in Israel, we pay about five to seven shekels, which I don't know how, how much um, that is in pounds right now, but probably like one or one and a half pounds. Um, per cube liter of water. So that's 1,000 liters of water. And that includes um, sewage systems. Whereas in the South Hebron Hills, for any water there can't be naturally collected. And a lot of the water that Ali talked about that's naturally collected is also um, blocked by either settler violence or by the army from being accessible, right? Ali talked about kind of um, the, these different small settlements really closing in on the village. And, and so then you have to bring in water in water tanks, right? And in areas of the South Hebron Hills in which there's, in which it's not in the firing zone, that can easily cost about 25 shekels um, per cube liter. So about five times the price is what, you know, the Palestinian village of Susia is paying about five times the price as the settlement of Susia right next door. And in the firing zone, I saw that Jan asked a question about the condition of the roads, and, and, and I won't take that question away from Abby, but I'll just say, because the conditions of the roads are so poor and it's illegal if you don't live inside the firing zone to enter in there with a vehicle, which means a lot of times vehicles are confiscated by the army. And so because this water is brought in from vehicles that then have to be four by fours and are sometimes confiscated, that means the price on average for water can be 35 shekels or higher for the same amount of water that Right now I'm paying closer to five shekels for, right? Just to kind of really highlight the level of inequality that we're talking about for such a natural and important resource. And we heard in the last uh, webinar as well from Abbas that the water is often subsidized for the settlers as well, making it even cheaper for them, um, which is- Yeah, I pay closer to seven and settlers pay closer to five. Um, so you mentioned Jan's question, so I'll, I'll, I'll raise it now. Uh, Jan Benvi asks, can Ali say something about the condition of the roads, um, you know, and how that affects tanking in the water, getting to and from schools or hospitals and so forth? Yes, of course. Just one second. Yeah, so as I said, like before, that يعني, uh, being like uh, living in a firing zone in Area C and without like the, uh, being approved, like the master plan of our village is being approved by the civil administration, anything, even a medical clinic, not just a road, a medical clinic or a kindergarten, it would be demolished by the Israeli civil administration. 
So for sure, like the roads that like the situation of the road, if you like, if you see like the roads among like the villages of the firing zone and in the whole areas in, in uh, area C, it's just a dirt road, like paving, even if the people will try to put some concrete on, on the road, not like paving it, this will be like uh, destroyed by the, by the bulldozers. Actually, like uh, not just like the bulldozers, in additionally, what we are facing in the firing zone, for example, last year, not the civil administration did it for master planning issue, but for the firing zone issue, a big bulldozer that's called D9 in uh, June last year, have like entered, like moved among the, moved from the outpost of Chavat Ma'on, which it is in the, in the firing zone, as we said, and they open a road that leads between the outpost of Chavat Ma'on to the Israel, to the Palestinian villages that the settlers are using it to drive to harass the Palestinian shepherds in those villages. While it was driving from there, it opened the road, the dirt road that had fixed the, the dirt road that lead to the outpost. And when it down, there was like 100 meter of road that was uh, built for Palestinians in concrete and it totally smashed it like, and it made it upside down. So like, this is like the, 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 the situation of the road. For the Palestinians actually that sometimes, يعني, uh, for the hospitals, like for emergency, uh, the Palestinians have to deal with this road. يعني, I have witnessed uh, just like two, one month ago, like a village that is called Sfai nearby my village Tuba, they were driving very fast on this dirt road because one one kid was in in a very like uh, in a very emergency situation and he needs to go to the doctor, and because of the driver was very worried he was driving on this road two tires of his car were like flat tired and we jumped like to help him and we drove very fast and our car also got the broken and the kid made it in the hospital dead. So the, the kid before he arrived to the hospital, he, he died. And because the, he needed like to cross also like the other, we went out of the old tires and uh, the driver had to drive, like his cousin had to drive the rest of the distance in without like, without uh, the car, without having tires just on wheels with tires, which made it like take it even more, more time. For the women that also need to give birth, like يعني, for the woman that she doesn't like feel like few hours before that she give the birth, immediately she find herself that she needs to give the birth. She had to deal also with the same situation. In the whole areas of the firing zone, there is no like uh, any, any hospital or medical clinics. We have to drive through the whole dirt uh, roads in the firing zone until we reach to the city of Yaqba. Uh, also, يعني, this is like what I can explain about driving on this road for emergency that people need to go to the, to the hospital. Uh, also, like what my village also, as I said, Khafat Ma'on, it's, it's like يعني, located from the east part between the rest of the West Bank wherever we Palestinians can go, Khavat Ma'on is blocking our road. And from the other part is the, is the green line, is Israel, where we as Palestinians are not allowed to go there, like to Beersheba. So we are in both like, in both like 
chain from a settlement in Masafir Yatta, and from the other side, it is the uh, Israel. So since like Chavat Ma'on, it was like immediately established on a road that connects my village in just two kilometers and half until the, until the city. But since the Chavat Ma'on was established, it blocked the road and the Palestinians until today, since 2000, until today, are not able to use this road anymore as a result of the settler violence. Because they are, last time my uncle drove there, they smashed his tractor. It's the same, like for the people now today, for all their needs, they have to go from Tuba, for example, they have to like drive an extra 20 kilometers in order to make a detour around the, this settlement chain to get to the other side of it, where is the city it is, to reach to the hospital and to, to get their food and their livestock food. For the kids, as I said, like I did the 12 years, my school, I did it for 12 years in the village of Tuwani under the military escort. For, for us, like we don't, as again, we don't have a school in our village, so we have to attend the nearest school nearby us. Before 2000, for the for my uncles and for my for like for my older cousins, it was easily drive, walking at the morning at seven and walk for 20 minutes for two kilometers and half and reach to the 20. But in, in that happened until 2002 when the settlers like start regularly attack the kids, and then. Uh, from 2002 until 2004, the kids have to make a de this detour of extra walking more than 10 kilometers in the other side of the outpost in order to reach the other side, the other side of it, where is the school? So they need like the whole day actually from sunrise until sunset, going and coming back to school. In 2004, American volunteers decided to accompany the kids back from this two kilometers road and then immediately masked settlers with the chains attacked the kids and the, the volunteers. For Israel, like this is an illegal outpost. Instead of opening an investigation uh, to like to open an investigation against the criminals that attacked six years old kids going to school or to remove this illegal structure, they specialize a jeep of army to accompany the kids at the morning and the afternoon going and coming back from school. I have wrote my experience in Haaretz. I hope like I can share it to the, the link with you. Uh, yani until today, my cousins who were not born yet in 2004, they have to do like, they are almost getting graduated in two or three years and they will, uh, they, they will graduate from high school under doing it all under military escort, and Israel will not find a real solution or to face the real problem of the most violent uh, settlers' uh, existence, which it is Chabad Ma'on. Thanks. Thanks for that. I hope that was helpful. That was, um, that was very interesting to hear and heartbreaking again. Um, Thank you everyone for staying with us. We've uh, gone a little bit over time, but that's because it's just been so interesting to hear from you all. Um, please do, if you've uh, found this interesting, please do consider supporting the Balfour Project. We're trying to keep these webinars free so that they can be widely distributed. 
um, to everyone and, um, and easily accessible for everyone. We have a new program, uh, Friends of Balfour Project. So if you sign up for a regular giving, a monthly amount or an annual amount of any amount, then you become a friend of the Balfour Project and that will enable you to have some, um, some benefits that are listed on the website. I will post a link in the chat box. Some of you have had trouble with um, clicking on links in the chat box. I will email all attendees with all the links that have been posted by the speakers and by myself um, after this event. So you will be able to access them there. Um, I, first of all, would like to thank both of you for speaking before I take the last question because both of you are in such difficult positions and so brave for speaking out from your different, perspectives and backgrounds to come on together on such an issue. It's just, it's amazing to see. It's heartwarming to see that. And uh, for both of you to be so eloquent and to take time to, out to speak to us all about these conditions that are absolutely unimaginable for most of us here living in the UK, the US and so forth. Um, so <laughs> I'd like to try to end on a hopeful note so that, um, you know, we don't all sign off and just cry into our soup. Um, what can we do here as you know most of us are based in the uk we've got some americans some canadians some europeans and so forth but most of us are outside of israel palestine what can we do to help um and is there any cause for hope so that's a combination of questions from matan who you saw earlier and from Gillian mosley who is the amazing director who produced the tinderbox which we screened a couple of um, a good few months ago now. So um, yeah, anything that we can do and any signs of hope or any cause for hope? Yeah, maybe I'll start and then Ali, you can have the last word um, as, as of course uh, you deserve. And um, I, I do think that there are reasons to hope. Um, I can't deny, I wasn't personally inside the, the, the court case on March 15th, but I think there's an inherently flawed system where the people are sitting in a court case um, and, and many of them didn't understand what was going on, right? We're talking about people whose who's definitely whose first language, whose mother tongue is Arabic, many of whom don't speak Hebrew, um, listening to a court case in a language they don't understand decide their fates. With that being said, I do think there is reason to hope and it's you know not by chance um, that we are trying to do as many webinars like this as possible um, I would say that a year and a half ago, or you know, two years ago, really no one heard about 918. Um, I mean, including, you know, even Israeli politicians hadn't heard about 918. And there was a really thoughtful decision amongst um, the, the residents of Masaf Eliyata and of um, Israeli activists and international activists and groups like us. And that 918 is something that everyone needs to know about, because once everyone knows about 918, it's actually a pretty clear case of, um, of injustice. Um, there's not nearly as much complexity here that you, you know, that, that, that people can try and argue. And I think you see that also in the state's arguments, right? And the state isn't really making some argument that they have nowhere else to practice. Um, and, you know, I saw some people um, write in the comments, you know, what can I do? Um, a member of parliament's pretty deaf or, you know, international pressure doesn't really do anything. And I, I understand that feeling, but I, I do beg to disagree. You know, we've seen a lot of situations 
um, in, during the occupation, as part of the occupation, especially inside the West Bank, of full villages who, according to the Israeli high courts, could have been destroyed, demolished, moved, um, and that hasn't happened because of international pressure um, and because of Israeli internal pressure, right? Um, and I think that, you know, that's an ecosystem that we should be striving for where, um, and, and, you know, see, obviously, me and Ali are here to, today. Um, there's a lot more residents also from within Masaf Eliyata and the whole South Hebron Hills um, and Israeli activists and international activists who are working on this together. You know, specifically Masaf Eliyata, there have been campaigns to save Masaf Eliyata. And I'll, we'll send the link in the follow-up email of how you can join and get ideas. But I can say, I remember, you know, waking up and walking around Tel Aviv one day to graffiti that said, save Masaf Eliyata and uh, uh, photos from residents from within Masaf Eliyata, from the youngest of children to the oldest of grandmothers. Um, and that, that has done a lot to, to raise the awareness. I, I think it's important, you know, um, the residents inside, and don't have the hope of giving up. And I think that that should be our call for solidarity um, at every moment possible. And to remember there are other cases that are very similar um, in which both internal and international pressure works. Um, and it's absolutely our place to make that known. For those who feel comfortable doing so to politicians, do so to politicians. For those who don't, uh, and our graffiti artists go crazy, you know? Um, I mean, I'm not here to suggest the, you know, which specific thing to do, but I would say that anything that raises awareness first and foremost about 918 is crucial because it's very hard to campaign against something that people aren't aware of. Um, and, and, and directed campaigns towards politicians work way better than, uh, than we tend to think to on, you know, it's, it's not a huge campaign. I, I understand the problem in, in a huge campaign of saying end the occupation, right? Which of course we is, is, you know, breaking the silence, at least the ultimate goal that we have, right? But on a specific campaign about a specific issue, that's a type of stuff where politics actually work very, very well as do public awareness campaigns. Yeah, sometimes they like to have a specific task to work on. on. Yeah, Absolutely. so for sure, I agree with that, um, definitely. Ali, can we give you the final word? Yes, of course, uh, and I will add my voice to what uh, Becca just said, like raising awareness is like the most important thing because what, what like we are explaining and like the policies that uh, Becca and I just like was telling from this webinar today is that they are, Israel is easily ethnic, like ethnically colonizing 1,300 people. As they told my experience of my family when uh, an evacuation happened, like, like evacuation similar to this really happened in 1999. People just were thrown in the hills, like without any life elements. So we are talking about an ethnic eclinizing. Like clearly it's an ethnic eclinizing against 1,300 people. And for those like who care about animals, tens of thousands of sheep and goats, dogs, also will lost their livelihood from where they graze and from there where they have a shelter to protect them from the warmth of the summer and the freezing winter. So raising awareness around 918, people were asking what, please define 918. It's the field called define, like what is the occupation is calling Masafar Yatta fire, like after the declaration of firing of uh, Masafar Yatta as firing zone, they call it 918. So the name of the firing zone in Masafar Yatta, it's called 918. Raising awareness around it is uh, very important 
for people like to protest and to make the international pressure because like the lawyer told me just like two days ago that now it seems that like they are gonna make like the ruling and it could be for the favor of the army against 1,300 people. So 1,300 people have to lose their homes for the favor of the army. We don't have much to do yet now, unless like the international or the pressure that comes around Israel from the whole world around it. So uh, we also like have invited a few days ago with the break in cooperation with the Breaking the Silence, Betselem and all other organizations that work in the area, European diplomats to come here to the area to attend the court hearing in order to make a pressure. So you as a resident, I guess you for sure you have much more power than me for your elected uh, officials and diplomats here in the, in the country to send letters to and to make a pressure on the Israeli army and governments in order to stop the ethnic colonizing and the forced displacements against hundreds of people. And this is like what people, I guess, and believe can, most can do. And thank you so much for everyone that showed up to listen to our stories and to know about Masafaria. Thank you so much. So yeah, please do share this um, recording, which will go up on the website. Please do tell everyone you know about what you heard today. Um, I would like to thank you all uh, for coming along as well. And thank you so much, Rebecca and Ali. Um, I think we had a comment from Sui Ang, who's one of the founders of MAP, Medical Aid for Palestinians. And her comment sums it up nicely. So I'm gonna read it out. She says, special thanks to your two wonderful speakers today eye-opening and we must work on this. So yes, that definitely, I feel like we've all come away with that sentiment. So thank you again so much. And everyone who is interested to, to be involved in the Balfour Project campaign on Masafariata, just to be in touch with us, there will be uh, events uh, and, other, uh, and other parts of the campaign coming up. So um, just stay tuned with us. Yes, if you're not on our mailing list already, then please um, do go to the website balforproject.org, sign up to the mailing list and you'll find out about future events. So um, sorry, we've run over a bit, but it was just it was just so fascinating and um, didn't get through half of the questions. But I will be sharing the chat box with Becca and Ali. Becca's already been responding to some of your queries, as you've seen. So they will see all your comments. And we're just really grateful that Ali's um, internet held up for him to be able to stay with us the whole time as well. So everyone have a lovely evening and uh, we hope to see you next time. Thank you. You too. Thank you, guys. Bye. Thank you. Bye.